The Mayday Murders is copyright 2005 by Scott Wittenberg. To learn more about this and other novels by the author, please visit scottwittenberg.com. Chapter 23 Anne realized she was trembling from head to toe as she began inching her way toward the window, her hands swatting in the darkness before her. She came upon an object and touched it gingerly. It was a huge canvas board mounted on an easel. She sidestepped the painting and continued. In another few steps, she bumped into a heavy object, a table. She groped around the tabletop and could feel tubes of oil paint, a tin can, and the base of what felt like a table lamp. Jerry was screaming at her unintelligibly, and still pounding on the door as she ran her hand up the lamp until she felt the gooseneck that terminated at a light fixture. She felt the bulb inside the housing and ran her finger along it until she hit home. With a grateful sigh, she pressed the button. The room became bathed in light. The first thing she saw was the table and all the scattered paint tubes and brushes upon it. The next thing she saw caused her to scream and made the hair on her neck stand on end. An enormous oil painting on an easel. And unlike the rest of Jerry Rankin's paintings, this was no abstract study. Instead, it was a traditional rendering of three nude women lying side by side, flat on their backs, in identical positions. All three were evidently dead and had May Day inscribed across their breasts in what appeared to be bright red lipstick. Anne gasped in horror when she spotted the vial of lipstick shoved up into the vagina of the middle woman's spread eagle legs. A woman who bore a stunning resemblance to Marcia Bradley. Anne stood with her eyes transfixed and mouth agape, oblivious to the fact that Jerry Rankin was no longer screaming and beating on the door. She felt her stomach muscles tighten as she studied the image of the woman lying to the left of Marcia. Although she hadn't seen her in over twenty years, Anne was almost certain that the woman was Sarah Hunt. And when she looked at the woman on the right, Anne began to shiver. The woman bore an uncanny resemblance to herself, only with blonde hair. And then she spotted something else, placed on the lip of the easel. Three Polaroid prints lined up in a row. Shots of the new bodies of Marcia Bradley, Sarah Hunt, and the blonde woman who resembled herself. Jesus Christ, she thought, as she felt the bile rise in her throat. Stanley Jenkins. Jerry Rankin was Stanley Jenkins. But how could he be? It was impossible. Suddenly, she heard a whooshing noise coming from her left. Her eyes shot past the half-dozen or so paintings to the sliding doors that led to the balcony, just as Jerry Rankin was entering the loft. "'You're going to die,' he hissed, springing toward her. Anne let out a shriek and ran for the hatch door. But Jerry Rankin was too quick. He caught her before she even had a chance to open the latch. He was so enraged that he punched Anne hard in the face and forced her to the floor, jumping on top of her and pinning her down. I should kill you now, he spat, his face only inches away from hers, but not quite yet. Anne screamed hysterically and wrestled with him, but to no avail. He doubled up in laughter. Don't even try it, Anne. You're no match for me. His voice had taken on the hillbilly twang again. Who are you? He glanced over at the painting, then back at her, and Anne could see his face clearly now. His left eye was green, but his right eye was brown. Apparently, his other green contact lens had fallen out into the jacuzzi when she slashed him with her wine glass. Stanley Jenkins, she vaguely recalled, had brown eyes. A hideous grin came to his face, and instead of replying, he merely eyed her body for a moment and then stared at her expectantly, as if waiting for her to answer her own question. 
Anne already knew the answer, despite the under inconceivability of it. Her mind flashed back twenty years to the last time she could recall ever seeing or hearing Stanley Jenkins. She recalled his voice, a sort of whiny, nasal twang, just the sort of voice one would expect to hear from a nerdy egghead from southern Ohio. Well, Anne, who am I? Anne felt her heart bursting out of her ribcage. Stanley Jenkins had found her. Stanley Jenkins was going to kill her, just as he had killed Marsha and the others. She turned her head away from him. Stanley Jenkins. He grasped her chin in his free hand and jerked her head back around. He was leering at her as he said to her in a confidential tone of voice, It didn't have to end this way, Anne. I told you that this room was off limits, but you had to come up here anyway, didn't you? And now you've discovered my little secret. Why did you kill my friend and the others? Your friend? he retorted with a smirk. Marcia wasn't your friend, Anne. She deceived you. She went behind your back and played a trick on you. She and that deplorable Sarah Hunt bitch. Anne's eyes widened in absolute shock. What in the world are you talking about? Stanley loosened his hold on her and shook his head. You don't get it, do you? You have absolutely no idea what happened. I'm very disappointed, Anne. Hell, you're every bit as naive as those other stupid women. Now you're probably going to disappoint me even more and tell me that you don't remember my asking you out to the prom our senior year. Please, Anne, don't let me down. Please tell me you at least remember that. Or was it so fucking insignificant that it slipped your mind after all these years? I, I remember. You were at a basketball game, cheering the team on in that cute little miniskirt that showed your ass so nicely. I was watching you from the bleachers, doing your splits and getting tossed in the air so high that I could see the crotch of your red panties as clear as day. I never got tired of watching you, Anne. You were so beautiful, so damn classy. I never failed to get excited whenever I watched you. It didn't make any difference what you were doing, studying, watching television, taking a bath. It never failed to give me a hard-on. It didn't take too long for me to realize that I wanted you more than anything else in the world. You became my only reason to exist for quite a while, in fact. I dreamt about you every night, after I went to bed. I dreamt of someday having you all to myself, to hold you and to touch you and have wild, kinky sex with you. God, you were all I could ever think about. And I made a vow to myself that someday I would have you. Anne stared up at him as he spoke, as intrigued as she was mortified by these disturbing revelations. He paused just long enough to climb off of her and resituate himself, kneeling on one knee as she remained lying flat on her back. I had it all figured out, Anne. My plan was to put you under surveillance and learn all I could about you without you ever knowing it. I started following you home from school and at night, hanging around your house and spying on you. Your house was perfect. Lots of windows and neat places to hide without being seen by any of the neighbors. You lived alone with your mother, and she went out a lot, too, which really helped. Anyway, I did this for practically our entire senior year, and in that time, I discovered a lot of interesting things about you, besides the obvious fact that you had the most luscious body I'd ever seen, that is. He winked and grinned impudently at her when he said this, sending a cold chill down Anne's spine. She looked away from him and found what he was telling her simply too hard to believe. I never had much luck with girls at school, Anne, as you no doubt recall. They all thought I was some kind of nerdy do-gooder, and even I know they thought I was uglier than sin. I couldn't change my looks any. Mother wouldn't let me. So I figured that if I could somehow attract you in a spiritual way, I might have a chance. My plan was to show you how well I knew you, and that I understood what made you tick. I thought you'd be impressed and would go out with me, because you were different from the others. You had a heart. I snuck into your house once and read your diary. 
I discovered by reading it that you had compassion for others less fortunate than yourself. You felt sorry for your mother because your father had died when you were so young. You felt sorry for your friends for various reasons. One got knocked up by her boyfriend, another got jilted by hers, and so on and so on. But you never felt sorry for yourself. You cared for others more than you cared for yourself. You were a true giver. I thought that was so classy. I had myself convinced that if I played my cards right and approached you at just the right time to ask you on a date, that you'd do it. And you probably would have, if it wouldn't have been for your so-called friend, Marcia Stillner. That bitch fucked me up at that basketball game, Ann. She and Sarah Hunt were sitting together and called me over to them. I asked them what they wanted, and your dear friend Marcia told me that she wanted me to ask you to the prom. I didn't believe her at first, of course, but Marcia was such a great actress. She kept a straight face and insisted that she was telling the truth. Sarah Hunt then gave me an Oscar-winning performance as Best Supporting Actress. She looked at me right in the eye and said, Anne knows that you have the hots for her, Stanley, and she thinks you're really cute. She's been waiting months for you to ask her out, but she's afraid you won't have the nerve to do it. I flipped out when she told me this. All of a sudden I started thinking maybe you knew I'd been spying on you all this time and that you were letting me watch you through the window because you enjoyed entertaining me. Like, you were being coy with me. I got all excited, thinking that this was turning out even better than I'd dreamed it would. And I thanked Marsh and Sarah for the tip. I went down near the sideline and watched you a little longer, trying to get my nerve up. Then, just to be on the safe side, I quickly looked up at where Marsh and Sarah were sitting, half expecting to see them doubled up in laughter over their little joke. But they weren't laughing at all. In fact, they were watching the game and seemed oblivious to anything else. That convinced me that they were on the up and up. So I mustered up all my courage and walked over to you. Then I asked you out. The rest, as they say, is history. Stanley stood up and walked over to the balcony door and examined the wound on his face in the reflection. Anne was frozen where she lay, overwhelmed by what he had just told her. She considered making a run for it, but knew that it would be futile. She wanted to lash out at him, tell him that what Marcia had done over twenty years ago didn't justify his murdering her, but she remained silent. Stanley Jenkins was clearly off his rocker, schizoid. There was no sense in trying to rationalize anything with him. He was also a cold-blooded killer and she realized that it was just a matter of moments before he murdered her as well. She was not in any hurry to die, though. Stanley turned around and strode over to her, dabbing at his wound with a towel. He had tears in his eyes. He stood over her and forced a weak smile. You might as well have killed me that day, Anne. I was shattered by your refusal, and really angered that I'd fallen for your friend's little scheme. Now, maybe you can understand why I got great satisfaction killing them. They fucked me up royally and deserved to die. His tone of voice sharpened. His self-confidence returned. I went into seclusion after that incident at the basketball game. I still wanted you in spite of what happened, but I knew there was little I could do about it at the time. After graduation, my parents all but forced me to go away to college, so I started taking courses that summer. In a way, I didn't care. I just wanted to get away from Smithtown. I did drugs, a lot of drugs, and I didn't give a flying fuck about my grades or my parents. I had hit the skids and just wanted to try to have fun for a change. Then I laid eyes on Cindy Fuller for the first time at a party one night. She reminded me so much of you. I started following her around and spying on her, all the time pretending that she was you. Then I made the same mistake yet again. I asked her out and she refused me. I got really angry and wanted to kill her. 
Sam has already told you all about the fire and all that, so I won't bore you with it. Anne flinched at the mention of Sam, if only she'd listened to him. While I was in the nut house, he continued, I made a vow to myself. When I got you, I was going to change myself, make myself a better person. Not long after I finally got released, I received a rather tidy life insurance settlement, thanks to my recently departed father. I went to Vegas and studied the tables, then figured out how to beat the system. I got fucking rich, on the matter of a few months. I took all my winnings to L.A. and began devising my master plan. Stanley paused for a moment and stared thoughtfully at Anne. You can get up, Anne. You're uncomfortable. Don't worry. I'm not going to harm you. Anne knew this was a lie, but stood up nonetheless. He winked at her, then strode over to a stool near the window and gestured toward it. Why don't you sit here, he said. It was more of a command than a suggestion. Anne nodded and went over to the stool, sat down. The wood was cold and hard against her damp swimsuit as she tried futilely to quit shivering. It was becoming increasingly apparent that Stanley had a dual personality, a sort of Jekyll and Hyde persona, and at the moment he was assuming a sort of unsettling combination of both characters. Jenkins sauntered over to the painting of the nude women and studied it for a moment, then turned around and faced Anne. I kept totally to myself while living in L.A. In fact, I was virtually incognito. I ran a beachside villa under a fictitious name and spent the next year there making dozens of overseas calls to Europe and fooling around with personal computers, which were just beginning to appear in the consumer market. I was absolutely fascinated by computers, so I started writing my own programs and finding ways of patching into, at the time, the relatively infantile Internet, as well as various databases. My plan was simple, but time-consuming to execute. I had three objectives. One was to locate a plastic surgeon out of the country who was not only really good, but who could also be bribed. Secrecy is the key, Anne. As they say, loose lips sink ships. It was my intention to have reconstructive surgery performed on my entire face. In other words, turn my ugly face into a handsome one. It was not my intention, though, for anyone to find out about it. Thus, whoever performed this transition was going to have to keep silent as well. My second objective was to assume an entirely new identity. Ironically, that was probably the easiest of all to execute. Just a matter of checking out court records and locating the right name of the right person, then obtaining a birth certificate. My third objective, having gotten my new face and name, was to actually make myself become this new person. This was not easy, to say the least but I was quite determined. I stayed in Europe after the surgery because I realized that the most effective way to dramatically change my speech, mannerisms, and personality was to get saturated in a totally different environment other than the one I'd been accustomed to. Europe is so wonderful, Anne, so different from the States. The people there have a lot of class and impeccable manners for the most part, unlike we Americans. I assumed a sort of aristocratic demeanor, a rich American who knew how to live the good life. I traveled extensively around the continent, carefully observing the people and absorbing their more appealing qualities and making them my own. I got pretty good at it, as you already know. By now you're probably asking yourself why I did all this. What was the purpose? The answer is simple. Besides the fact that I hated being Stanley Jenkins and wanted to eliminate him, I also wanted something else, or more precisely, someone else. I still wanted you, Anne. I figured that if I changed myself that you would accept me and I could finally realize my dreams. Jenkins stared at Anne expectantly, studied her reaction. Anne squirmed on the stool and looked away. 
I'd heard that you'd married Sam Middleton not long after graduation, and almost hated you for that. But I didn't. I decided I'd follow through with my plan and let fate take its course. I am a fatalist, you see. I came back to the States in January and did some surveillance, discovered that you were still with Sam, and had a daughter. So I decided to buy this place and ride out the tide. Then fate entered the picture this spring. You and Sam got divorced. I sat around and waited to see what you were going to do, and to my surprise and delight, you moved to Columbus. My course was suddenly set. I would eliminate everyone who had ever stood in my way of getting to you. Then I'd make my ultimate move. Anne started sobbing hysterically. Jenkins walked over and gently placed his hands on her shoulder, causing her to flinch. Don't cry, Anne. It's only going to make things worse. He stroked her hair, still damp from the hot tub, and said, I truly am sorry it had to turn out this way, but I half suspected it would, and as a result, I'm going to have to resort to my backup plan. I should have known better than to think you're any different than the others anyway, and it only goes to show that I am not infallible. But all is not lost, by any means. I'll be able to say goodbye to Stanley Jenkins for good after tonight, and believe me, that'll be quite a weight off my shoulders. He stepped back and looked her over, then said, I'm afraid I'm going to have to kill you, Anne. I'll have a plane to catch in a few hours, and I've already wasted enough time telling you my life story. But I felt you had a right to know what I've just told you. And besides that, I've not been particularly looking forward to putting an end to your existence. But life goes on, Anne. I have no choice in the matter. Unfortunately, I can't let you live and still walk out of here a free man. I do hope you understand. His directness caught Anne off guard and sobered her thoughts. Suddenly, her will for survival superseded everything else. She had to get away, at least stall him somehow for now, at least give him a goddamn fight. Please let me live, Stanley. I promise that— The name is Jerry Rankin, Anne, remember? We're through with Stanley now. I beg you, Jerry, please don't kill me. I promise I won't tell a soul any of this. You can leave the country, or go wherever you're going, and I'll pretend that this never happened. He laughed heartily, and Anne knew that she had said the wrong thing. It's not going to work, Anne. You're going to have to give me a better offer than that. Anne knew what he was implying. I'll do anything, Jerry. Please, just let me go. Amy needs me. He grinned, then replied. You should have thought of that before, Anne. You had your chance, but you blew it. He removed the bloodied towel and looked at it, tossed it to the floor, and stared directly into Anne's eyes. And look at what you did to me. Cut my fucking face with that wine glass. Yet here you are, standing there half-naked and all blurry-eyed, begging me to spare your fucking life. After you fucking cut me? Do you know how many goddamn stitches it's going to take to fix my face? Christ, Anne. Sorry to say, but you're not in a very good negotiating position right now. Suddenly, Dr. Jekyll turned into Mr. Hyde. He grabbed her by the arm, flung her down the floor, and was on top of her in a flash. He started yanking down her swimsuit bottoms as Anne pummeled his chest with her fists, her legs thrashing wildly. No more time to negotiate, Anne. I'm going to fuck you. Then I'm going to kill you. Anne fought back fiercely. She managed to rake her fingernails over the fresh wound on his face, causing him to let out a blood-curdling howl. He stopped dead for a second, stared at her with eyes that wanted to kill, and ripped off her bathing suit in one quick, effortless motion. Anne screamed in terror and struck him in the face again. He gaped at her maniacally, as though he couldn't believe what had just happened, then brought back his hand to strike her. They both heard the voices at the same time. They were coming from downstairs, muffled and unintelligible, but getting louder. A look of absolute horror came over Stanley's face as he froze in his tracks and cocked his head, listening, covering Anne's mouth in his hand. 
and could hear her heart beating wildly, and watched as drips of blood ran down Stanley's cheeks and plopped onto one of her breasts. The loft floor vibrated from where the steel staircase was attached to it, as someone climbed up and apparently stopped on the second floor. Anne tried to scream, but all that came out was a muffled whimper into Stanley Jenkins' hand. His face was chalk-white as he glanced first at the hatch, then over to the balcony door, apparently trying to decide what to do next. All of a sudden, the floor started vibrating again, and they heard footsteps coming closer. Stanley flinched as his eyes darted all around the room. Total panic. The footsteps ceased, and they heard someone shove hard against the door. Stanley leered at Anne threateningly, tightening his grip over her mouth, daring her to utter a sound. Someone banged on the door a couple of times and tried to force it open. There was a moment of silence, then the sound of more footsteps coming up the stairs. "'This is the Sheriff's Department, Rankin. We know you're in there. Open this door immediately,' a muffled voice commanded. Anne felt a huge wave of relief sweep over her. She tried to scream again, but Stanley's hand stifled her. He glared at her defiantly. Jenkins' eyes darted over toward the balcony again, and he made a gesture for Anne to stand up. "'We're on to you, Stanley, so give yourself up,' another voice said. Anne immediately recognized that distinctive voice. It was Roger Hackstrom. "'We've got your entire house surrounded, so I suggest you open this door and let us do our job. We don't want anyone to get hurt,' Roger said. What little color Stanley's face had drained away. He was kneeling now with one hand over Anne's mouth and the other over his wound. His eyes frantically surveyed the room in a desperate effort to figure out his next move. They both heard the sound of more footsteps scurrying up the staircase. Anne, are you in there? It was Sam. On impulse, Anne grabbed Stanley's wrist and wrenched his hand away from her mouth. Sam, she cried. In a flash, Jenkins slapped her hard on the cheek, and Anne slumped to the floor, reeling from the blow. Anne, Sam shouted, are you all right? Jenkins suddenly snatched up a coil of picture-hanging wire from the table and forced Anne up to a sitting position. He knelt behind her and wrapped a length of the wire around her neck. No! she cried. Anne felt the wire cut into her flesh and screamed hysterically. Your wife's life is quite literally in my hands, Sam, Jenkins shouted. If you want her alive, then I suggest you, your sidekick, and the rest of this lynch mob back off now. There was an unintelligible mumbling of voices for a moment. Then Anne heard Roger Hagstrom say, "'Don't harm her, Stanley. We'll do whatever you say.' Stanley chuckled nervously. "'That's very prudent of you, Roger. I'll tell you my demands in a moment, but first I've got to know something. How in the fuck did you find me out? I purposely left a couple little clues for you to ponder over, but that was only to incriminate Stanley Jenkins. Certainly not his alias.' "'The picture, Stanley,' Sam said. "'You took a Polaroid of my daughter, and she sent it to me. Your prints were all over it.' Stanley contemplated this for a moment, then said, I'll buy that, Sam, but what prompted you to check out the prints in the first place? You should have sprung for a new camera, Stanley. Your pinch rollers on that old relic are about shot. You might say that they left an incriminating trail. Fuck, Jenkins gasped, realizing his folly. And with that, Stanley Jenkins snapped. Anne felt the wire tighten around her neck, and at the same time heard a rustling come from behind her. A shot rang out, and Stanley immediately released his grip. Anne spun around just as a young officer sprinted across the room from the balcony. He placed the barrel of his service revolver against Jenkins' temple. Release her, Jenkins, or the next one's for you. Anne watched as Stanley shut his eyes. Please don't shoot me, he whined. I give up. Stand up and put your hands behind your back, the officer commanded. After Jenkins complied, the officer handcuffed him. Got him, sir, he hollered in the direction of the door. Are you all right, ma'am? he asked Anne. 
The officer picked up a sheet draped over a chair and sheepishly handed it to Anne. Yes, thank you, Anne replied gratefully. She covered herself up with the sheet and got up onto her feet. Open the door, Griggs, someone demanded from the other side of the door. Keeping his pistol trained on Jenkins, Officer Griggs went over and opened the hatch door. Sam was the first one inside. He ran over and threw his arms around Anne as he glanced at Stanley Jenkins and did a double take when he saw the notorious Jerry Rankin for the first time. God, Sam, I'm so glad to see you, Anne cried as Sam held her tight. Me too, honey, he replied. Roger entered with the officers from the Hocking County Sheriff's Department. Anne saw the astonished look on Roger's face when he saw Stanley Jenkins, alias Jerry Rankin. Jesus Christ, Stanley, looks like you got a bit more than just a little nip and tuck from your plastic surgeon, he exclaimed. Stanley frowned and looked away. Roger stepped over to Anne, gave her a quick hug, winked at Sam, and turned to face Jenkins. Stanley Jenkins, you're under arrest for the murder of Marcia Bradley. You have the right to remain silent. For more information about the Mayday Murders and other books by the author, please visit scottwittenberg.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>